Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is the Bill Press Show live at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. It is the Day of the Dead, and let's hope the Republican Party will be dead five days from now. Hey, what do you say, everybody? It is the Bill Press Show. Here we are on a Thursday. Yep, Dia de los Muertos. Thursday. Don't ask me to speak any more Spanish today. (laughs) Thursday, November 1, 2018. Five days from the midterms. Great to see you today. Here we go with all the news of the day. Yes, indeed. Willie Horton is back. Donald Trump releasing an ad that is every bit as uh, racist as the Willie Horton ad uh, in his desperation to uh, hold on to some Republican Senate seats before uh, during the uh, midterms. He's throwing anything at the wall he can to incite his base, base to strike fear into his base and fear into the hearts of the American people. Let's just hope the American people are smart enough to see through it all. Uh, The New York Times today with another big list of all the more recent Donald Trump lies. Uh, On the same day that Donald Trump tells Jonathan Carl from ABC News that he always tries. He always tries uh, to tell the truth and he likes telling the truth. Well, then why doesn't he do so more often? We got so, so much to talk about. Uh, uh, not to mention, you thought 5,000 troops to the border was too many? How about 15,000? Yeah, you know what? By the end of the weekend, there'll be 50,000 at the border, according to Donald Trump. Ten for every member of the caravan. Oh, my God, it gets worse and worse and worse. We'll keep you up to date on all of it, give you a chance to sound off on Twitter, at BP Show. Send us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show. But First, this is the Full Court Press. Yes, indeed. Just a couple of other stories making news. It's one of the uh, more popular places here in Washington, D.C. It's something you have to do after you move here, Bill. You have to go to Georgetown to go see 
the Exorcist steps. I'm sure you've yeah, been oh, there. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. It's something yeah. that everybody has to do I, once yeah, they're in Washington D.C. Well, here's kind of getting kind of old. They are, thing. but they're still a draw. People still like to go see them. Well, there yeah, is now a push, a movement to try and turn it into a historic landmark. There is uh, one man, Andrew Huff, who is leading this push. He uh, is a graduate of Georgetown University. He lived over in the area. And there is now a plaque over there that's mounted that tells you these are the stairs. This is where it happened. But he is actually pushing for it to be classified as an actual national landmark. Hmm. He says that when he has friends that come to the city, they always say, they don't ask to go to the Capitol. They don't ask to go to the White House. They say, hey, can we go to the Exorcist Steps? So it's become a tourist attraction for the city. So he's pushing to make that happen, and it might actually happen. We'll just have to see. You know, that is interesting because we often have, you do too, we often have friends who come to the sure. city. And we, and we, there are things that we usually like to take them to see. Yeah. Never taken people to the exorcist steps. Really? And nobody, none of our friends have ever asked. I've had people ask. I've had people yeah. ask. It, I mean, it's a thing. It's a thing. It's not a huge thing, yeah. but it's a thing. It used I think to it's, be more than it is today. Yeah. It's just interesting. I never, th- I hadn't thought about that, but, you know. Yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens. But one thing, I hate to go to Georgetown. <laughs> That's the other thing. What's scarier than the Georgetown steps? Traffic in Georgetown. Traffic in Georgetown. Well, right. you know, The Connors is the show that is uh, continuing on, even though Roseanne is no longer on it, and they are not doing very well. Yesterday, Whoa. The Connors were beaten by everything. Every other show that was on TV uh, no, really. uh, beat the Connors. Yes, indeed. In fact, uh, ABC has <laughs> only ordered one extra episode. They had the original order of 10 episodes. They said that we've only ordered one extra one, and it l- sounds like that might be the finale. I don't know that they're going to take it any farther than that. Wow. So they got rid of Roseanne. The ratings are gone. They're just going to get rid of the show altogether. They can't say they didn't try. That's probably because they were not nice enough to Donald Trump. Clearly, that was the problem. Yeah. (laughs) This is the Bill Press Show. Yes, indeed. Move over, Donald Trump. Oprah is coming back. And Oprah, you watch. She'll make a difference where Donald Trump can't. Hey, great to see you today. It is a Thursday, November 1. Yes, Dia de los Muertos, the day after Halloween, the day of the dead. Uh, and, uh, the, you know, don't let that put a damper on the day. It's a big day. It's an important day. Five days from the midterms. Lots of work to do between now and then. I've talked to so many people who are volunteering this weekend, volunteering today, making phone calls, phone banks, walking door to door, uh, doing whatever they can uh, to push Democrats over the finish line on Tuesday. And you get five more days in order to do so. And early, here's the great news is, as we'll talk more about it in a little bit, early turnout is way, way, way up, and it is favoring the Democrats. So as we've said every day this week, 
We got one word for you. Turn out, turn out, turn out, turn out, turn out. That's what it all amounts to. By the way, NBC News reported that uh, as of yesterday, 24 million votes yep. have been counted yep. earlier absentee in the uh, midterm elections. Yeah. And that's a bigger number than the entire nationwide early vote from 2014 already. Right, right. And uh, it is uh, projected uh, that the early vote total this year could exceed the total vote turtle total <laughs> vote turtle those are hard to say together <laughs> vote total you got it <laughs> we're not talking about mitch mcconnell no <laughs> uh it could exceed the total votes cast in 2014 both on election day and early voting the early voting alone so this is very 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 exciting uh, almost as exciting as it is to have you with us today. Thank you for joining us. It's always good to have you part of the show. Love getting together with you uh, to start the day every day with the news of the day and joining you online on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Joining you on Free Speech TV, You're looking good out there in TV land. I'll snuggle up on the couch watching us this morning and uh, or at the kitchen table. And how about it? You're looking good on the radio, too, statewide in Indiana on Indiana Talks and in the Chicago, the great city of Chicago and the greater Chicago area on WCPT, the progressive voice of Chicago. It goes on and on and on. Yes, uh, Donald Trump yesterday, before he gets uh, on the plane down to uh, on Marine One, down to uh, heading down to Florida uh, for another big rally down there with Rick Scott and Ron DeSantis. Uh, two losers in Florida, Donald Trump, uh, they're behind, both be- behind, not by a lot, but both behind in the polls. In a state that um, Republicans used to count on and maybe no longer. But before getting on Marine One yesterday, uh, Donald Trump uh, talking about troops at the border uh, and saying that um, we might even, Peter, need a, uh, might even need a... A uh, few more, Donald Trump says, hello, hello. We might, need, we might need a few more troops, Donald Trump is saying, down at the border. 5,000 ain't enough. As far as the caravan is concerned, our military is out. We have about 5,008. We'll go up to anywhere between 10 and 15,000 military personnel on top of Border Patrol, ICE, and everybody else at the border. I got to tell you, when I heard that yesterday... I, I thought I didn't hear it right. I, like, fell off my chair. I mean, sending 5,000, there was already 2,100 National Guard troops down there, remember. And then the president announcing he was sending 5,200 troops to the border, which Defense Secretary James Mattis went along with uh, and really, really let me down, I think let the American people down. And then the president just cavalierly says, no, 5,200 is not enough. And that's why you just heard him say it, 10 to 15,000 people. That's more troops. Think of this. Why? How can he do that and why? He says he's done because this caravan of families, mothers, children, some teenage kids, yeah, some older guys, but, I mean, their families fleeing violence in Honduras, now 1,000 miles from the border, and there were at one time... 7,000, now it's estimated maybe 4,000 because a lot have gone back home. 
a lot of them decide to stay in Mexico. They may, like yesterday, they were resting all day. They may or may not make it to the border. Some of them probably will. They may or they may not seek asylum. Some of them will. Very few of them will ever get in. Donald Trump declaring this an emergency and an emergency that requires sending armed military troops, our troops to the border, 5,200 is bad enough. 15,000, that's more troops than we have in Afghanistan. This more troops than we have fighting ISIS, the Islamic State. We consider these refugees more, I mean, unarmed, hungry, exhausted, poor, a greater threat. This is absolutely insane. Why would anybody go along with this, let alone um, the Department of the Department of Defense and the Defense Secretary? Congresswoman Jackie Speer yesterday estimated this is going to cost us, by the way, between 100 and 150 million dollars. And, you know, we play this game and we shouldn't. But you got to think, what if Barack Obama had done something like this? The Congress would have been, they would have been so up in arms, holding hearings, voting not to put the money up for this. And the Republicans in Congress, Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell, they just, they haven't said a thing. I haven't heard Paul Ryan say beans about this, uh, spending this money. And James Mattis yesterday, again, the biggest disappointment of the year. Mattis, who's a lot of people, a lot of veterans groups have called this a polit- nothing but a political stunt, a border stunt. James Mattis? We don't do stunts in this department. Oh, yeah? You just what did. What is this dude. then? You just dude, did. And you know what? Mattis also said this is not um, a stunt. We are doing this at the request of the Department of Homeland Security. That's outrageous. That's a stunt. That's not the way the Pentagon works. That's not the way the military works. Read the Constitution. I don't think anybody in the Trump White House has, right, which gets to the whole question about whether the president can do this by executive order. Okay, let's deal with that. No, is the answer. The president can declare an emergency. He does have that power, given to him by Congress, by the way, not the Constitution. And and if he declares an emergency, he can send the military in on a particular thing. George Bush declared an emergency on September 11. But when the president does that by law, he has to inform Congress of what the emergency is, why he's within, I think it's like two or three days, what, what action he took, why he took it, how much it's going to cost, boom, 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 boom to justify it. Donald Trump has done none of that, of course. And now he's going from 5,000, he says, to up to 15,000. Whether he'll do it or not, who knows? But he did do he, he did do the 5,000. They're already on their way. Back to what Mattis said about I do this for, for the Department of Homeland Security. I mean, again, that's not the way the military works. What if when he was there at EPA... Scott Pruitt had said, hey, you know what? I need a 1,000 troops down in Georgia because those environmentalists down there are trying to uh, uh, prevent this oil refinery from dumping their crap into the river. I, hey, Jim, I need 5,000 troops down in, in Georgia or in California to stop those environmentalists from allowing us to drill off the coast. That's not 
what the military is for. You can't say, oh, the Department of Commerce requested 5,000 troops, so, you know, that's what we do. Uh-huh. No. Uh, doesn't work that way. Should not work that way. And, again, shame on Congress for letting it happen that letting it happen that way. And, of course, this is on top of Donald Trump, who continues to insist that he also has executive order uh, to uh, deny children who are born here in this country, uh, children of people, undocumented people, from becoming citizens, as is provided for in the Constitution of the United States, which used to mean something, doesn't anymore, not under this administration. Uh, Donald Trump says he can change the Constitution, uh, change that practice by executive order. Before, again, he got on Marine One yesterday, um, he talked about um, uh, how, how illegal experts have told him this. I believe that you can have a simple vote in Congress, or it's even possible, in my opinion, this is after meeting with some very talented legal scholars, that you can do it through an executive order. Oh, yeah. The competent legal scholars. Yeah, some flunky in the White House counsel's office that they got to got to give him this opinion. Uh, and after all, uh, Trump says, hey, if it was good enough for Obama, it's good enough for me. If President Obama can get DACA approved, if you look at DACA, where he actually said, well, this isn't legal or this I can't do, but I'll do it anyway. And then he gets a judge to approve it. And it'll ultimately be decided by the Supreme Court, I hope, quickly. But certainly, if he can do DACA, we can do this by executive order. Uh, yeah, yeah, Donald Trump, uh, nice try. Uh, no cigar. Right. Several differences there. Number one, that's not what President Obama said. What President Obama said about the Dreamers was he did this after repeated attempts in Congress to get a bill passed, which Congress would not pass, and they... The, the administration put the bill together. There were several votes in Congress. They tried. They tried, and con Congress would not do it. And then Obama said, well, then I'm going to do it by executive order and ask Congress to approve it, number one. Number two, we weren't talking about the Constitution of the United States. That Dreamers program had nothing to do with the Constitution of the United States. It did not hinge on any constitutional issue uh, at all. Uh, Donald Trump is taking it uh, way, 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 way beyond that. Uh, and at, at, at the same time, first of all, raising this issue and throwing this issue out there right before the midterms, when Republican candidates, a lot of them would rather be talking about, well, jobs. They'd rather be talking about tax cuts. They'd rather be talking about the economy, although mm, getting a little shaky. They'd rather be talking about why you can trust us on health care, even though you can't. <laughs> Instead, they're out there now forced to take a stand on this birthright citizenship, which doesn't make them very happy. So even Speaker Paul Ryan tried to throw a little cold water on Donald Trump's plans, as we heard yesterday. Well, you obviously cannot do that. Uh, you cannot end birthright citizenship with an executive order. We didn't like it when Obama tried changing immigration laws via executive action. And obviously, as conservatives, um, you know, we believe in, in, in the Constitution. You know, as a conservative, I'm a believer in following the plain text of the Constitution. And I think in this case, the 14th Amendment's pretty clear. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. um, and that would. Whoa. 
involve a very, very lengthy constitutional process. Mm-hmm. But where we obviously totally agree with the president yeah. is getting at the There's root issue here, which out. is um, unchecked illegal immigration. Notice, uh, and of course, he dares differ with Donald Trump on that point. And what did Donald Trump do yesterday? He tweeted out a blast at Paul Ryan, basically saying, Hey, Ryan, do your job. Focus on getting Republicans elected and stop criticizing me. I'm just pulling up his tweet because it, it it's such a perfect uh, tweet because people yeah. read it, I think, yeah. uh, as what I think it was probably meant to be, uh, immediately already starting to put the blame on Paul Ryan when For Republicans the lose house. the House. Yeah. Uh, here he says, Donald Trump tweeted yesterday, Paul Ryan should be focusing on holding the majority rather than giving his opinions on birthright citizenship, something he knows nothing about. Our new Republican majority will work on this, closing the immigration loopholes and securing the border. So again, it's it's basically saying when we lose the majority, yeah, Paul Ryan is the guy to blame. Right. Uh, I saw one Republican, uh, unnamed Republican strategist yesterday, talk to Jim Acosta from CNN. And he said, oh, thanks, Donald. This is just what we need, right? We got five days to go. We're trying to hold on to these House races. And now Donald Trump throws this stink bomb about uh, about birthright citizenship out there, which we now have to try to talk about and defend. And then on top of that, he attacks the Republican Speaker of the House of Representatives. This is really, really good for House Republican candidates who are trying to hold on their job. Uh, Donald Trump uh, certainly not making it uh, any easier at all. But the one thing we can count on is that Donald Trump will tell the truth, right? I mean, he told Jonathan Carl yesterday, that's what he does. He's the, <laughs> good for Jonathan Carl for asking this question, by the way. Uh, you know, he was in the Oval Office. Lucky he didn't end up like Jamal Khashoggi. Um, but, uh, and uh, Donald Trump... <laughs> Unbelievable. He can't even tell the truth about telling the truth. You remember well in the campaign, you made a promise. You said, I will never lie to you. So can you tell me now, honestly, have you kept that promise at all times? Have you always well, been Well, I truthful? try. I mean, I do try. I think you try, too. You say things about me that are not necessarily correct. I do try, and uh, I always want to tell the truth. When I can, I tell the truth. I mean, sometimes it turns out to be where something happens that's different or there's a change, but I always like to be truthful. I've said this so many times. There is no God. This proves there is no God. If there were a God, lightning would strike him dead on the spot. Yes. For for that statement. Um, So, Pick this out. You can go online and find this. This morning's New York Times, the great Peter Baker and Linda Q. Uh, across two pages, they've got, along the campaign trail, a litany of untruths. It is amazing. I mean, just jumping around. Uh, about the caravan, right? There's a few examples. Donald Trump says, all these Middle Eastern people down there are in the caravan. They say it happens all the time from the Middle East. But that's not even saying bad or good. I'm just saying there are people there from the Middle East. Um, this, the, the New York Times, this totally lacks evidence. Counterterrorism officials told the New York Times there is no credible threat that terrorist groups were trying to, no evidence that terrorist groups are trying to infiltrate the southern border. Donald Trump says, you know how the caravan started? 
I think Democrats had something to do with it. New York Times totally lacks evidence that the caravan was in fact started in a small by a small town in the in the town a small group in the town of San Pedro Sula in Honduras. Um, Donald Trump said, "Birthright citizenship. We're the only country in the world where a person comes in and has a baby becomes a citizen." Blah 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 blah. New York Times, not true. At least thirty other countries, including Mexico and Canada, grant automatic birthright citizenship. It goes on and on. He talked, remember, about um, their riots in California in cities that trying to get out from under the uh, state's sanctuary cities law. New York Times, there is not one evidence. They check with law enforcement authorities statewide in California. Not one example of one riot in the state of California. And then Donald Trump went on to say, there's a town in California where they actually tried to take the town council over and illegal aliens are running the town council. In the entire state of California, 58 counties and all those cities and towns, there is not one undocumented person elected to any public office, nor could they be elected to public office. It is just an outright lie. Uh, and, and this guy, he also said last week, we didn't get a chance to talk about this. There's so much he says that you have to miss. Here he said, America has the cleanest air in the world by far. Well, the New York Times actually took a look at the map. By the way, it's a map from the World Health Organization, part of the UN, which, of course, Donald Trump is trying to do away with. Uh, the World Health Organization map actually showed that Canada, Iceland, Sweden, Finland, Estonia, New Zealand, Australia, and Brunei all have cleaner air than the United States does. I mean, I mean, come on. Yeah, I mean, how far can he go? Is it? it yeah. He said about on trade. They wouldn't meet with Obama, the European Union. Japan wouldn't meet with Obama. Well, actually, the New York Times shows that from 2013 to 2016, the EU and the United States engaged in 14 rounds of talks over trade deals. Donald Trump says they never met with him. And then finally, he says, just to show to what extent this guy lies all the time. He says, I remember Dick Grasso, a friend of mine, great guy. He headed up the New York Stock Exchange on September 11, and the New York Stock Exchange was open the following day. This was a recent one, mm -hmm. he just said. Yeah, right. Actually, the New York Stock Exchange closed and did not open again until September 17. Can we hear again what he told Jonathan Carl? You remember well in the campaign, you made a promise. You said, I will never lie to you. So can you tell me now, honestly, have you kept to that promise at all times? Have you always well, been truthful? Well, I try. I mean, I do try. I think you try, too. You say things about me that are not necessarily correct. I do try, and uh, I always want to tell the truth. When I can, I tell the truth. I mean, sometimes it turns out to be where something happens that's different or there's a change, but I always like to be truthful. You know, it's with Trump, it's always interesting to me. If you put it through the lens of talking to a an eight-year-old child, Right. We're like they're mm -hmm. starting to kind of like figure out some independence, just just starting to. And they'll start to make up these stories. And like, did did you spill this everywhere? Well, uh, well, I uh, and, and, like, they just start lying. 
right? Yeah. It's this is Trump. What did you lie about making brushing your teeth before you went to bed? Well, I tried to I tried. brush my teeth, mm-hmm. and, bu- 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 and yeah. it's just it's like a little kid. It's I, like a pathological lying little kid. He does. He, I, he has zero regard for the truth. He just says whatever he wants, whatever comes to his, to his head, deliberately, deliberately lies. You got to call it that. It is a lie. It's not a misrepresentation. It's not an exaggeration. It is a lie. And it always comes back to him. One little tweet this morning, I had to laugh out loud at this one. This was waiting for me when I opened my eyes this morning. I picked up my phone. Oh, tweet that's from, always a great way to wake I know, up. Tr- tweet from Donald Trump, and which came in actually at 1130 last night. Uh, he's talking about the, he retweeted something from The Hill, by the way. Fox News tops CNN and MSNBC combined in October cable news ratings, and Donald Trump adds, that's because they treat me fairly. Yes, that's why That's why CNN and MSNBC, according to him, are not doing so well in the polls. Hey, but a little bit of good news. Two items of good news. Number one, we touched on this at the very, very top. It's worth uh, repeating. Turnout. Early voting is up. Turnout is the key to this election, more so than ever before. And early voting is up 24 million people, as you point out, NBC News has, has calculated. In 17, 17 states have already set a record for early voting. Um, they're estimated that in some of those states, the early vote total, early vote alone, could exceed the total vote on election day and early vote in 2014. By the way, in 2014, that we, is wild. Isn't that wild? And the numbers in every one of those states shows Democrats far outpacing Republicans in early vote. So, well, like, the momentum is there. The excitement is there. We got to keep it going. If Donald Trump is trying to rev up his base with all these outrageous scorched scorched uh, earth scorched earth tactics in the last couple of days, that's got to motivate Democrats even more. I said I know this is purely anecdotal, but I mentioned this uh, yeah, last week. I went lines, to go early right. voting for the first time. I've always just voted mm-hmm. on election day, uh, and I went to go do early voting. Lines out the door, and it moves really quickly. So don't let that discourage you. Yeah, but like no. I've yep. never seen a crowd like that before to vote, even on election day. Right. So in twenty four in twenty sixteen, by the way, sixty one percent of Americans voted in the presidential. There's a lot of excitement about Hillary and Donald Trump, both both sides. In 2014, the last midterms, 37% voted. Only 37. So, we get it up to we get it up to 61, 65% this time. Uh, early, I mean, total vote, and Democrats will take back the House and take back the Senate. And it came to Donald Trump's attention last night down in Florida when we he talked about a little bit about early voting. He makes a joke of it, but it, he also makes a point. Who voted? Then what the hell am I doing here tonight? Goodbye. Everybody. Yeah. So the idea of these rallies. What am I doing here? It's, really, it's funny. What? But the, the rallies, and remember, eight states, 11 rallies. So that means, because he's going back to Florida again. Still, eight states, ten more rallies to go between now and Tuesday. God, God help us. Um, 
But he's doing it to rev up the base. If the base has already voted, what's the point? It makes you wonder what good these rallies are doing. Uh, but he's going to do them. He's going to do them anyhow. But certainly, I think it's true. He's not doing much good other than the people who go to these arenas. Yeah, they may go out and vote. I don't think his rallies are having much reach beyond that uh, at all. But the early vote is one bit of good news. And the other bit of good news is Oprah is coming off the sidelines again for the very, very first time. She never had anything to do with politics until Barack Obama. And she went out for Barack Obama in 2008. Campaign for him up and down. Still a good friends of Barack and Michelle Obama. Uh, she supported Hillary Clinton uh, in the general election in uh, 2016, and she is going down to Georgia to campaign for Stacey Abrams. And right away, that raised all kinds of speculation about what whether Oprah might change her mind about 2020. Some of her friends, like uh, Gail King, are encouraging her to run 2020. Who knows what Oprah will do in 2020? She's welcome to run if she wants to, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but right now, I think she can make a big difference uh, because you have a disgraced Secretary of State running against Stacey Abrams in Georgia. Again, Stacey Abrams would become the first African-American woman governor in the history of this country. It's damn about time that we did that. And she is a great, great candidate. And now with Oprah's support, go, 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 Georgia. Show the world that you have moved into the 21st century. I will take a quick break and come back. And yes, Donald Trump, he has determined that racism got him to the White House and racism is going to get uh, Republicans over the finish line in uh, 2018 with all of his renewed attacks on immigrants. Coming up, um, Tom Jowitz from the Center for American Progress going to join us talk all about that. This is the Bill Press Show. How about it? Thursday, November 1st, 2018, The Bill Press Show. Welcome back, everybody. Great to have you with us today. And um, don't forget, one more reminder, Trump Must Go. Absolutely. It's also the name of my new book, title of my new book. Trump Must Go, the top 100 reasons to dump Trump and maybe one to keep him. Go on our website at BillPressShow.com. Find out all about it. Of course, your local bookstore or the online uh, sites. Also, uh, easy place to get uh, get your copy. Uh, and if I come up with the top 100, you can add a, you could add another 100 probably in the next 15 minutes. Uh, check it out. Um, and I'll be at the National Press Club tomorrow night for their annual book fair, signing copies of Trump Must Go. Uh, we are talking uh, of the news of the day, particularly a lot on immigration and the president's latest. We didn't even get to his latest um uh, despicable racist ad that he released, but we'll get to that and a whole lot more on immigration issues with Tom Javits from the Center for American Progress, Vice President of Immigration Policy over there. Tom, good to see you. Great, thanks for being here. Thanks for coming in. And uh, we uh, have uh, already, uh, uh, you know, gathered a few comments from our listeners this morning, Peter. Yes, indeed. We're on Twitter at BP Show, at BP Show, about all those troops at the border. Someone says maybe the troops are there to keep people from leaving the United States when martial law is invoked. That's a bleak thought. Uh, Phil says Trump can't invade Mexico to boost his struggling ratings, so he's going to try and invade New Mexico instead. Yikes. 
Uh, our, fr- our buddy Romaine, our Romaine just puts it very simply. Donald Trump, the man has mental issues. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. Uh, and my info, my info on Twitter Anybody says- Anybody who supports him, I think, has mental issues, but yeah. that's uh, my own opinion. Uh, on Twitter, uh, the user my info says, I went and voted early yesterday. Very, very easy. Now I can give others a ride to the polls on November 6th. It is time to vote. Good if you, point. If you have a comment, find us on Twitter at BP Show. You know, get them in. Lock them in. Get them in the bank. Peter, you voted. I voted. Has Ray voted yet? No. No, no she right. has not voted All yet. Right. Well, well she's, she'll be out there on election day. Election sure day, sure. But may, or he may be even before. Have you voted, Tom? I voted yesterday. You voted? Yes. There we go. It's a thing to do. Early voting is important. You never know what's going to pop up, right? Seriously. Well, in some states, you find out that you weren't even registered to vote because they took you off the rolls. That's true. That's the way it's going, right? So I uh, can't encourage you enough to get out and vote, get out and vote, and get out and vote. Um, all right. So, uh, Tom, you've uh, you, you've been following uh, this uh, caravan. Um, how many Middle Easterners are in it again? Every other person is I mean, from the Middle East? Is that? Yeah. I mean, the president's got an, you know, he's trying to portray an image uh, to the public about what this thing looks like. Um, and, you know, it's everything but the truth, right? What we know is that there are, you know, a couple thousand individuals uh, who began in Honduras uh, who have been walking, mostly mothers and children who are coming. Um, and in many ways, it's actually really a consolidation of a flow of asylum seekers that have been leaving Honduras as well as El Salvador and Guatemala for five, six years now, basically, as a result of really, really incredible levels of violence in those three countries. And so the reason people have historically traveled in caravans is because of the well-known dangers of the journey itself. If you go yeah. in as an individual, yeah. it costs a lot of money. You subject yourself to smugglers. Uh, you know, it is true. There's a lot of uh, danger, especially it's of women who are traveling uh, themselves or with their children. And so people end up going together because there's safety in numbers. And what Donald Trump has said about this group is, first of all, there are a lot of criminals there. Any evidence? There's, there's no evidence that there's any overwhelming number of criminals, certainly. And, you know, what we know from you know, past instances of uh, people coming in this kind of group or coming individually is that with the people who are coming from Central America today, the people who have been coming from Central America for the last five years, first and foremost, many of them are going to our ports of entry to present themselves and request asylum. Some actually get the opportunity to present asylum. Mm-hmm. Many, many are turned back. Right. right. And then, you know, those individuals who don't go to the ports of entry, either because they want to go through between the ports or because they couldn't go to the ports because they were turned away from the ports, they are often flagging down Border Patrol agents voluntarily to subject themselves to the process, right? They want to begin the process of requesting asylum in this country. Right. Any evidence of Middle Easterners? I mean, I, I certainly haven't seen any any evidence. The president can't point to any evidence. I mean, New York Times points out this morning that our counterterrorism officials have found zero counter-tell- evidence. That, that's right. You know, but also taking one step back, it's like a meta-narrative, right? I mean, what is the president trying to say when he says there are unknown right. Middle Easterners? Right? Um, the, the idea that there might be people of Middle Eastern descent who are traveling, it's not its not unusual, frankly, for people to take the flight out of the country that they can get in order to go to another country where they may have a visa or may have the ability to enter and then begin their journey for safety from that point of location. So that wouldn't be unheard the, of. It wouldn't be unusual. And it wouldn't be sinister. The idea that just because they're Middle Easterners, yeah. they have to be they have a threat to the United States is That's right. fundamentally racist to, to, to begin with. Um, how many people are we talking about now? I mean, there's a couple thousand. I mean, basically. it goes up and down. Yeah, there's a couple. There's a couple thousand basically that we're talking about in the in the in the uh, caravan that first started in Honduras. Mm-hmm. The last time we had a caravan, you know, by the time it got all the way through Mexico, it was a much much smaller number. 
Um, the numbers already been, have been going down pretty steadily in Mexico for the last week. Um, and Mexico itself has made an announcement that it's going to offer some temporary protection to individuals who can apply for asylum, who can get work authorization. So I think there are some individuals we're absolutely so we're hearing talking are applying for asylum. Roughly four or five thousand today. Do you think? I would think few, fewer than that, even frankly, probably. Okay. I mean, the president. I'll say the president said yesterday that he's very good at estimating crowd size, which I think <laughs> is like you know. Oh yeah, we saw know. that on inauguration day. Yeah, tremendous trolling from the president, but um, you know, it, it's you know, it's probably going to be a smaller number once it actually gets to the United States. Okay. So let's say 4,000, right? And we're sending 5,000 troops on top of 2,100 National Guard who are there. And yesterday the president said, Peter, we can hear him yet again, uh, 5,000 is not enough. We're going to triple it. As far as the caravan is concerned, our military is out. We have about 5,008. We'll go up to anywhere between 10 and 15,000 military personnel on top of Border Patrol, ICE, and everybody else at the border. 15,000 more uh, against this threat of 4,000 unarmed individuals walking? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, it's Put that in perspective for us. Yeah, so putting that in perspective, basically, we, are, we continue to be at historic lows for unauthorized border crossings since the United States. Uh, you know, they're basically, down. they're extremely, I mean, you know, they have gone up slightly in the last year, but they are at historic lows, right? So we had 1.6 million people apprehended by Border Patrol in fiscal year 2000. We have now several hundred thousand total, right? We're, we're, we're about, we're, we're, it would be a 400% increase, basically, if we went from the last fiscal year number to our historic high. Mm. But if you look at actually personnel along the border, right, we have more than 20,000 Border Patrol agents along the border. We now have these 2,000. Yeah, we now yeah. have 2,000 National Guard. We now have 15,000 uh, uh, many armed uh, active duty service members. If you took all the federal personnel, federal law enforcement or military personnel that are going to the border and assume that over the next fiscal year we have the same number of apprehensions that we had over the last fiscal year, you'd have one person being apprehended per month by each federal person uh, down on the border. <sighs> that's what we'd Lord. have. Yeah. Talk about overkill, right? I mean, and, I, I think that's right, yeah. And and is this the job of the U.S. military? I mean, I think that's one of the great, great tragedies of this, frankly. And it's where it's where you'd want Secretary of Defense Mattis to actually step up and defend I know. He's uh, the, the integrity of the forces. disappointment to me that he would even, um, that, 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 to, to consider this anything other than a political stunt that he's going along with. Yeah, and there's a, there's a great there's a great op-ed that my colleague Kelly Mag, uh, Magnuson uh, published on this topic. But I mean, the National Guard, the 2,000 National Guard that already are there, are you know this has been well reported now for several months. The job that they are doing is stuff like mucking out the stalls of the Border Patrol agents' horses, right? So that they're like all tacked up and ready to go, so the Border Patrol agents can go do their jobs. Um, but that's what the National Guard are doing. They're grooming the horses or yeah. cleaning out their stalls. Oh and, yeah, and, this and is he, what this is what our young. Our sons and daughters put their uniform on for. And when you think about what, you know, active duty, uh, you know, military who are already so stretched, so overdeployed, yeah. right? People are doing so many different tours. You know, the opportunity to actually spend time with your family is a cherished time and to be deployed as a, as a you know, pre-election stunt by the president for months to an area where you're, you're you know, you're not going to be able to do anything, certainly in the interest of the country, but will be a part of this, this, you know, political game. It just disrespects the uniform. How many troops in Afghanistan? I mean, the, the number of forces that we have fighting ISIS at this point is significantly fewer than the 15,000 the president wants to send to our southern border today. ISIS. The, yeah. So the Islamic State, yeah. in Donald at, Trump's look, eyes, less of a threat than this caravan from the from Honduras. That's what the numbers would tell us. Yeah. Any idea of the cost of this caravan? 
There was an estimate that came out yesterday. I'm now blanking on the amount, but I think it was something I like saw, 50 million. Or... I saw Jackie Spear put out an estimate of 100, and who knows a lot about the military. She's been uh, a big critic of, yeah. of their excessive spending, said about 150 million. Well, yeah, right. and so I just saw something now that I'm thinking about it. There, there was yesterday an estimate that came out that said that if it lasts like 45 days or so, it'll be on average about a million dollars a day, but that is probably a very low estimate. Uh, so it depends on how long the deployment is, and it would go up from there, basically. But I think the well, number that was floated was 50. That's a question. Uh, I think that's a very good question about how long the deployment is, because once you get them down there, it's hard to bring them back, right, unless you admit that the problem of illegal immigration has been solved, and there or there's nobody else coming across, right? It's hard. I mean, how does... We'll see. We'll He's see what the political wins. Yeah, we'll see what the political political wins say, basically. And frankly, that's another opportunity to look at the importance of this election coming up on Tuesday, because when you actually have a Democratic-controlled House, potentially a Democratic-controlled Senate, who have the opportunity not only to control the purse strings but also control the overstate agenda, we'll have a much better opportunity to look into exactly what what the, the the mission is that they're actually serving, what exactly they're doing, and that can sort of help change the conversation about whether whether this deployment has to end. All right, sending 15,000 troops to the border is not enough, Donald Trump. I mean, clearly, he knows he rode this racist horse into the White House in 2016, starting with calling Mexican immigrants rapists and criminals on June 16, 2015. Uh, so he's going to try to ride, he is trying to ride the same horse into bringing Republicans across the finish line next Tuesday. Um, 15,000 troops to the border is one element of it. And then he says, we are going to, and I can by executive order, uh, end the practice of birthright citizenship. Again, yesterday, just before he left for um, for Florida, talking to reporters on the South Lawn, he said, um, I can do this by executive order. I believe that you can have a simple vote in Congress, or it's even possible, in my opinion, this is after meeting with some very talented legal scholars, that you can do it through an executive order. Um, can he? He also said we're the only country in the planet that allows that has this practice. Right, and that's certainly untrue. Um, throughout the Western Hemisphere, basically, it's the dominant position. But in terms of uh, you know whether he can or not, there, there's no serious scholarly debate about whether the president has the authority unilaterally through executive action to change the terms, essentially, of the Citizenship Clause of the 14th Amendment, right? The, the, the language in the 14th Amendment is very clear. It was interpreted 120 years ago by the Supreme Court uh, when they ruled on precisely what the language subject to the jurisdiction means, when they ruled specifically on what the very limited exceptions are to that language. He does not have the authority by executive order to change that. And taking it a step further, there's, there's almost unanimous uh, uh, agreements among legal scholars that he doesn't have the authority to do this by Congress, congressional action either. Either. Okay. But so the Trump supporters on this, uh, and they may be few in number, they, they argue that that phrase, right, subject to the jurisdiction thereof, has never been tested in the Supreme Court, that, that this is all new territory. Right. That's totally untrue. I mean, I mean, literally in the case of Wong Kim Ark, the question before the court this was This was the case with a Chinese immigrant. Yeah. I mean, you might tell us the facts yeah, of that Yeah, it's, it's case. the case basically of a, of, a, of a Chinese immigrant who was born in the United States. And the question essentially was whether or not, given the laws at the time, uh, whether he was uh, had acquired citizenship, whether he was a natural-born citizen of the United States. And the Supreme Court ruled very clearly yes, because when you look at the question of what... But were his parents legal citizens? I mean, his parents. So his parents were not citizens. There was a, there was a bar on the ability to become citizens at the time, right? So there were there were, there was already there were already restrictions on sort of the, the nebulous legal status or permanent legal status mm-hmm. of 
uh, his parents and of Chinese nationals at the time. And so what essentially the court was ruling was that when you look at subject to the jurisdiction and you look at the debate in Congress when the, uh, the 14th Amendment was adopted, Congress had a very clear idea of what uh, subject to the jurisdiction meant. It meant people, uh, everyone but people who are the children of high-ranking diplomats, uh, the children of invading armies, uh, and then there was uh, a, a you know specific language regarding Native Americans uh, who at the time were not able to uh, become subject to the jurisdiction of the United States, but then through congressional action, we did have a law that was passed that provided uh, citizenship to to U.S. born. Uh, Where did this whole Indians. idea come from? This is, I mean, this has been a yeah a kind of a goal of the extreme right wingers for oh, a long so, time. So, yeah, so the Fourteenth Amendment itself came out of the Civil oh, War itself, yes. right? The Fourteenth Amendment itself right. and the Citizenship Clause was a direct rebuke of the Dred Scott case, which is mm-hmm. you know one of the greatest uh, uh, cases of, of, of instances of the Supreme Court. Worst case, decision. probably history. Worst yeah, decision in history of the Supreme yeah, Court. Yeah, finding finding that, that Bush that, v. Gore being the second worst. I would argue. Yeah, finding or that the, Citizens United. Not sure which one qualifies. Right, people of African descent could never become citizens of the United States. That was that court ruling, and the Fourteenth Amendment was adopted as a direct rebuke to that, to basically take it out of the hands of politicians and political mm-hmm. whims of the day, whether we were going to have bans on citizenship and belonging. That could be motivated by you know the caprices of the moment, right? Race, nationality, which is uh, exactly what opinion, Trump is trying to do now. Right. right now, in terms of sort of where this idea of ending birthright citizenship came from, this has been basically like you know one of the things that some of the 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 most strongest anti-immigrant forces have been trying to push for decades. It's sort of like it's their white whale, the thing they've always sort of wanted, because for yeah. them, they see this as the way to actually reverse the demographic changes that have been taking place in this country for decades. Right. If they can carve people out of belonging, carve people out of the ability to, to stay in this country and remain in this country and be uh, American, uh, then that can help to solidify, uh, you know, the, the white majority status, the European white majority status that Steve King and Steve Bannon and everybody else think civilization hinges upon. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned Steve King. I was, I was going to get to him a little bit later, but let's just talk about it. Right. I mean, in terms of uh, a white, white nationalist, white supremacist or whatever. If anybody outdoes Donald Trump, it's Steve King, isn't it? I mean, Steve King on the campaign trail said that his it's his job to pull Donald Trump to the right on on issues, including on immigration. And it is true. I mean, for, and has identified with white supremacists yeah, around the world. He has. Yeah, he he has really made it. I mean, in recent years, he has made it sort of his mission to travel around the world and identify with and provide support to white nationalists. Uh, in their own countries, right? He points to what's going on in the Netherlands. He points to uh, uh, what's going on in Canada. He points to individuals and says, this is the kind of leader that these countries need, um, and Donald Trump is the kind of leader that I need. And while you're seeing some people, the NRCC, uh, Paul Ryan, other people sort of make nods to pull away from his race, just yesterday you saw Ted Cruz give him a big bear hug and call him personally to say, look, you were the head of my campaign when I was running for president. I still Whoa. support you. Right. right. This is. I mean, it's kind of amazing Steve- to see... Sorry, I was going to say, it's kind of yeah. amazing to see that, like, at the very moment when finally the country is waking up to just how offensive and white national Steve King is, that's the moment Ted Cruz reaches out and says, that's my guy. Steve King and Ted Cruz. Boy, you talk about two people who deserve each other. That's God, a gruesome twosome, man. That is disgusting. Yeah, it really is. So on top, so we, we got the caravan and this birthright citizenship movement or uh, uh, whatever, Tactic. Ploy. Ploy. Thank you. Um, 
there's also rumors of a, a, an executive order that they're considering too, in terms of who gets a green card and who doesn't. If you take, oh, if you take food stamps, you know. I thought, I thought there were two other possible executive oh. orders you were referring to there. Actually, oh, really? That, that yeah. we can talk about. I mean, taking one step back, let me just say, Stephen Miller, um, the white nationalist yes. in the White House, it's still there, by the way. Isn't oh, he? very much still there. Yeah. He, this is his program. This is his plan. He made he made this clear in the spring. He gave this long interview in Breitbart. Your listeners should should read it, in which he basically said. Our goal going into the president into the midterm election is going to be to make immigration the number one issue in the country, right? They know this is how the president campaigned. They know that's how he's governed and how he's sort of governed campaigning in these last few weeks uh, leading into the midterm election. And so this is the conversation they want to have. And it's because they don't want to have a conversation about this huge tax cut that, you know, was given to the wealthy and to the biggest corporations. They don't want to have a conversation about their persistent efforts to uh, end access to affordable health care. Uh, they don't want to have a conversation about their plans to raid Social Security and Medicare. So those are things they don't want to have conversations about, right? And they instead want to have these divisive conversations that they think will be able to distract us. Yeah. But, well, you know, he succeeded in that. Well, he, with, he, with Trump, that's correct. Yeah. The, Trump, the willing acolyte here, if you will, of mm-hmm. Steve Miller to reverse the Absolutely. roles. Yeah. So, I mean, so th- three things that are sort of, you know, that are, that are sort of happening right now or maybe on, on the horizon. So the one thing you were referring to is a proposed rule that would change the definition of what it is to be a public charge. Um, and this is essentially a, a massive new wealth test on who has the ability to come to the United States, whether as an immigrant uh, or as a non-immigrant, as a visitor, um, or if you're in the United States, to adjust your status to get a green card. Um, you know, it takes basically a very arcane uh, piece of immigration law that has been applied in the past, but applied to a narrow set of individuals who are likely to become uh, primarily dependent on the government for long-term care and would expand it to apply to really anyone, essentially, including oh. working families. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing that is moving forward. There is a proposed rule. Comments are being uh, received by the, uh, by the federal government right now. There is another proposed rule out there, which would uh, which we refer to as the Flores rule. This is a proposed rule. Uh, Fl- Flores. So Flores is the settlement Flores. agreement okay. that governs how children are treated in immigration custody and says basically they have to be treated in accordance with basic child welfare standards. The government wants to essentially circumvent that settlement agreement by issuing a regulation that would allow them to, you know, among other things, certify for themselves that the family detention facilities they use are appropriate for kids. Because right now they're mm. required to have them licensed by states and states mm. don't license them because states yeah. say, why would right. you ever license a facility like this? And so they want to basically say, well, how about the federal government through a private contractor can license it? And then we can hold these kids in these facilities for months or yeah. years. That is also receiving really? comment right now. That closes on election day. Mm. Um, and you can go to endfamilydetention.org if you want to see or stop family detention. I should know this. End or stop familydetention.org in order to see that rule and to provide a comment. There is a third executive order that they floated just Lord. last week, um, which would basically be what they want to put these in place. These are coming out of DHS? So the, uh, the, 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 the change to family attention stuff is coming out of DHS and HHS. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a DOJ component to it that has been held up by the agency but could be forthcoming. Um, the change to public, public charge, charge is, is a DHS rule. Yeah. Um, and the then third one? the third thing is not being done through, through rulemaking. The third thing is something they floated uh, just uh, last week. Um, but it would actually be, I take it back, it is partially through rulemaking. It, it, the idea that was floated was they would do an interim final rule, so it would take effect immediately. It wouldn't be a proposed rule. Immediately, they would put in place a, a rule that says that if you are subject to 
a what's called a 212F proclamation, which is the same authority used for the Muslim ban. If you are subject to a proclamation like that, you are ineligible to apply for asylum in this country. And that would be accompanied by a new 212F proclamation, a new ban of sorts that would target someone. Totally unclear. It could be the caravan members. It could be all Hondurans. could be all Central Americans. Yeah. We don't know what the actual scope of that would be. But basically, again, another pre-election ploy they were floating to make it look like they were taking strong, tough action. But the reality would be actually closing our doors uh, to people who are fleeing persecution. I mean, it's a full-scale war on immigrants, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's there's no there's no question. This is an this is an unprecedented full-scale war on immigrants, and it's a culture war. I mean, this is this is the culture war uh, of the day. It's a culture war they want to have. It's what motivates. It's what animates his campaign. Um, and it's the one thing that, as much as they get mucked up, you know, it's interesting when you see all these different times during the last two years when he's been on his weakest footing, he's gotten beaten back on something. The the place he turns to, his comfort spot, is totally. always going to be immigration totally. and attacking totally. immigrants. Yeah. And for him, that's because he sees political gain in doing that. But yeah. he's surrounded himself with people like Jeff Sessions, like Stephen Miller, like Gene Hamilton, who aren't looking for those political gains. They're looking for the policy wins, right? They're looking to yeah. restrict legal immigration of the country. They're looking to keep this country white. Uh, it's good that there are people out there, uh, out there you tell people the facts, Tom. Tom Javits from the Center for American Progress, AmericanProgress.org. Thanks, yep. Tom. Thanks so much. This is The Bill Press Show. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of The Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Really? Here we go. Yes, indeed. On uh, November 1, uh, 2018, it is The Bill Press Show. Uh, 5,000 troops, not enough at the border. We're going to send, damn it, we're going to send 15,000. And if that's not enough, we'll pull everybody out of Syria, Iraq, Yemen, Afghanistan, (laughs) North Korea... Germany, send them all to the border, says Donald Trump, between now and next Tuesday. And on top of that, we'll give you a 10% tax cut. Oh, God, it is getting desperate these last few days, and we got five more to go. Hello, everybody. It is the Bill Press Show coming to you live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, and our studio in Capitol Hill, of course, with all the news of the day. Uh, And on the political front, He's back from the campaign trail, uh, bouncing around the country to check in with some of the important Senate races. Uh, Igor Babish from HuffPost. Hello, Igor. It's good to see you. Thanks, Bill. Welcome back. Good Thank to have you. you in town. Really good to be back. And you're going to be here for the next five days, right? I am. I am. That's right. Next big, exciting five days ahead. <laughs> yeah. Well, get your rest, because I think it's going to be a long night. That's Tuesday, right. Tuesday yeah. night. Uh, yeah. But what's really great, we talked about a little bit earlier, the early vote is out of bound, out off the roof, right? Off you the know, charts. Just, yeah, off the charts. Thank That's you. Right. That's a phrase. Uh, 24 million so far. 
Yeah. And 17 states have already exceeded their record whenever it was set the last time, not right. 2014, which is pretty bad here. And in, in a number of states already exceeding 2016 numbers, which is even more important. If, if Yeah, you know, 2016 presidential election. Right. The big fear among Democrats has always been that, you know, this is a midterm election and traditionally right. only Republicans and older voters, yep. white yep. rural voters turn out. Yeah. This is looking something more approaching twenty sixteen. That's not going to be the case in twenty in twenty eighteen. We're going to make sure that turnout, turnout, vote, vote. If you haven't already, get out there and vote. Uh, so Igor Bobish with us, and all of you. We want to hear from you. Your comments on the news of the day at BP Show. But first. This is the Full Court Press. Peter here. Yes, indeed. Just a couple of other stories making news. Well, you know, more and more countries are legalizing recreational marijuana. Mexico has not done it yet because there is uh, a constitutional ban on recreational marijuana in Mexico, right? Well, yesterday, Mexico's Supreme Court said that that ban is unconstitutional. So now lawmakers have to step up and say whether or not what they actually want to do with it. Again, I mentioned, you know, uh, Canada's done this. Other Mm -hmm. countries have done this. Mexico has not been able to actually push it forward because it was part of their constitution. No more. No more. It is unconstitutional to ban marijuana uh, in Mexico as a recreational drug. So now we'll see if they move it forward. Let me tell you, Mexico will do it before the United States. I, I agree, actually. Yeah, I agree. Uh, let's go down to Las Cruces, New Mexico, where a man went out to go hunting uh, jackrabbits in the desert, and he went with his dogs. He went with a couple of his favorite dogs, including Charlie, a 120-pound Rottweiler mix. Well, this man had his gun on the seat of his truck, and Charlie, well, Charlie accidentally shot his owner. <laughs> Ooh. The owner's fine. I want to point out the owner's fine. He got shot in the leg. Uh, he was able to drive himself to get it taken care of. Uh, he said, even though Charlie did shoot him, it was an accident, and Charlie is so, wait, still a let, good boy. Let, let, let's slow down here. He's got an armed, his, his loaded, loaded gun, gun on the seat of his seat car of the truck. with the truck dog sitting on top of it. And you got it, the dumbass. Yeah, you got it. Bill, uh, Bill, I didn't know that you like to hunt jackrabbit. <laughs> <laughs> My name ain't Charlie. Charlie, Charlie. Oh, Charlie, that was the dog. Charlie name. was the dog's name. <laughs> Charlie, again, a very good boy. Uh, I always side with the animals on these stories, by the way. Right? Like, I think you're right. If you have a loaded gun yeah. ready to be fired, just yeah. sitting on... Just sitting on Who's the dumbass in the cab of that truck? It's not the dog. No, no, not absolutely not. Uh, so the owner is fine, uh, and Charlie will also be fine. Everybody's good. This is the Bill Press Show. She will make the difference. Oprah jumping into politics 2018 on behalf of Stacey Abrams, Democratic candidate for governor in the great state of Georgia. Hello, everybody. Oprah is back. It is Thursday, November 1. So good to see you today. Thanks for joining us. 
as we come to you live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, with all the news of the day, including Donald Trump saying 5,000 troops to the border is not enough. We're going to send 15,000 or even more if we need them. And we'll bring you that news and all the rest of the news of the day online on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show, coast to coast on Free Speech TV and uh, out in the greater Chicago area on the great WCPT, the progressive voice of Chicago. Joining us from HuffPost here in studio, off just off the uh, campaign trail, Igor Babish, political, uh, national political reporter, senior political What title do you want? I mean, it's okay with me. I'll take them all. I'll take them all. take them all, right. (laughs) Uh, So you were, let's start, you were, how about this Oprah, huh? How about her? You think, you know, sounds like she's running. No? In 2020? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that, the the speculation started up again uh, uh, yesterday as soon as she said she's going to go down and help Stacey Abrams. Yeah, that's right. I would think uh, that she could make a big difference in Georgia. Yeah, I think so. It's a very tight race. She's a huge name, very popular still. Um, you know, it, in terms of getting out the vote for for Abrams, who That's needs what it's every all about. who needs every vote she can get, and that could make a big difference. Right, uh, and uh, up against the uh, Brian Kemp, the uh, the Secretary of State uh, in Georgia, uh, who's gotten a lot of criticism, including from former President Jimmy Carter, for his attempts to suppress the vote. That's right uh, in in Georgia, uh, and Stacey Abrams, who would make history in the first African American woman governor in this. The country hard to believe it hasn't happened yet, but I know. And Georgia seems like the perfect place historically for this to happen. Um, you know, we a colleague of mine, Laura Bassett, actually just put up mm-hmm. a story uh, on our website yesterday, uh, noting that the big push behind her campaign right now is this historically, um, you know, written out of history group, the domestic workers in Georgia, who were so big um, in the push for civil rights in the South mm. in the fifties and sixties, who have now sort of been written out of history, who are campaigning door-to-door for Stacey Abrams. Really great story. You should check that out. Uh, on HuffPost. That's yeah. right. No. That's right. Okay. Yeah. So it's good to see Oprah back in whatever the speculation about 2020, you know, we'll deal with that after next year. <laughs> but uh, it's already a crowded field, and, uh, you know, they've got their celebrity. We can have ours, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> who knows? But you just came off, uh, came back from uh, taking a look at the Senate race in Nevada, which is one of those key ones for Democrats in case they lose. They, they've got to keep hold on to, as we've said, talk so often, um, to there may be slim chances of winning the Senate, have to hold on to the five red states threatened and pick up a couple more. That's right. Nevada, Arizona, Tennessee, probably being the best. I thought there was one other state I'm thinking of. Well, Texas. Te- I'm sorry, Texas. <laughs> yes, of right. course, Texas, right. But t- tell us what the ground looks like in Nevada. Well, you know, Nevada, it's Jackie interesting. Jackie Rosen, Democrat versus that's right. incumbent Dean Heller. Just. That's right. And, and the, much of the narrative, the, the conventional wisdom, as you will, around this race has been that, you know, Dean Heller uh, was a, one of the most vulnerable Republicans right. this cycle, interestingly. He's considered toast. That's right. A and ago. Um, the polls aren't saying that. They're saying it's still matched. It's a pretty heated race. It's tight. A couple points could go either way. Uh, so really, you know, what I wanted to see in Nevada, which is why I went there, is why um, Heller is doing so well. And um, really what you have there right now is a huge, huge fight for um, getting out the vote, you, you know, rural versus urban. That's always been 
Nevada, the, the big fight in Nevada, and it's still more of a purple state. You know, Hillary Clinton did win Nevada in 2016, but she only won it by a couple of, a couple of uh, 10,000 votes, you know, not that much. Um, certainly a much smaller margin than Obama. And what Re- Republicans are arguing there that is that the state is actually shifting, trending more Republican uh, as we go. So we're going to see what happens in 2018, whether they're right or not. Um, uh, Jackie Rosen is a uh, uh, kind of a generic conventional Democrat, handpicked by Harry Reid, the mm-hmm. former senator, um, who he thought that she would present the best chance of taking down somebody like Heller. And of course, right. he's got this baggage. He, you know, repudiated President Trump there, and now he's completely, you know, voiced his support for him, which tends to hurt him among the Latino groups there, which is why. You see all these big names. Barack Obama went there. Joe Biden went there. Uh, they're really trying to get out Latinos to vote. Right. And well, you mentioned we've talked turnout, turnout, turnout. Particularly in Nevada, it it it, it hinges on turnout. Right. And um, and the turnout in Nevada, the master there is Harry Reid and the Las Vegas political machine. You mentioned, you know, cities versus rural areas. I mean, the people, the votes in Nevada are in the cities. Yeah. Right. Yeah, for the most part. For I the mean, most part, yeah. Um, what Democrats really need to do the, is uh, the hotel employees. The, yeah, the culinary union. Culinary union. Yeah, yeah, it's most of the service workers on the strip and majority of the casinos there right. um, that are a huge advantage the Democrats have there that they don't have in any other state really. Um, and it's going to be a test of whether Harry Reid, who's not on the ballot this year, who hasn't been in the Senate, who hasn't been delivering for them year after year, whether. Uh, they still have what it takes to to turn out voters. Uh, yeah, um, m- my impression is that they do, and uh, they are they are they are. Um, it's it's kind of concentrated force union force, but more powerful, I think, than unions anywhere anywhere else. Yeah, you know? it's it's really a remarkable story, be, and and sort of a contrast because unions have gone down in in power and right. influence somewhere. Everywhere else in the country, I mean, you look at Wisconsin, where Scott Walker now is also fighting for his life, and the unions aren't talked about there as much. Right. Uh, we just saw on the um, uh, on the screen here that Andrew Gillum uh, just up on uh, on CNN, uh, the Democratic candidate bouncing around Senate and gubernatorial races, but the the Democratic candidate for governor in Florida, who could very well end up deciding the Senate race in Florida, too. He could. Um, helping uh, um, Bill Nelson win re-election. Um, so um, Andrew Gillum was, um, I mean, Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis have really made this a campaign based on race. Uh, uh-huh. And and Gillum has dealt with it, uh, uh, I think, very effectively. He came up with, Peter and I think, the, the best rebuke to uh, the Donald Trump um, when uh, to Ron DeSantis and in effect through Donald Trump uh, in the last debate when um, from the very, as we know, the day after he won the nomination, Ron DeSantis started making this about race when he said, well, the last thing we can do is monkey up this race or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, and then in their last debate, the issue of whether the DeSantis was using race against him as an issue against him. Uh, Terry Gillum, I thought, dealt with it very effectively. Here he is. Now, I'm not calling Mr. DeSantis a racist. I'm simply saying the racists believe he's a racist. Uh Ha-ha. That's the punchline everybody's talking about. Yeah. Yeah, right. 
he he seems like uh, right now at least in the democratic field he's the most well equipped rhetorically at least to 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 fight back um a lot of Democrats, w- I, I think, would not have come out with that line. Mm-hmm. He, he did it really quite well. I right. think I, I think that's the blueprint. I really do think that's the blueprint. And it's more it. effective than calling him a racist. Right? Yeah. That, and look, I mean, you know, it Democrats It is, but have, it does it in a way that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Democrats effective. have not been great about hammering back on some of this stuff, right? I mean, they, they stop short of calling someone a racist. Um, and... To put it in the way that he just put it, I mean, he is uniquely qualified for these times to handle this type of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, so Donald Trump loads on, of course, by calling uh, Andrew Gillum a thief. Crazy. Right. I mean, based on, again, nothing. Uh, there is an FBI investigation of some city council people in Tallahassee, the mayor not being one of them. Um, but he calls him a crook. And that that's a dog whistle word. I mean, that's clear. Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's like a three-hour news story in this crazy news cycle because yeah. he comes out saying, you know, outrageous things every other second. Right. Uh, but Andrew Gillum dealt with that pretty effectively, too, uh, I think, when uh, this is an interview, I forget who it was. It was, on, it was Trevor Noah on The Daily Show. That's right. On Trevor, with Trevor Noah, The Daily Show. My grandmother used to have this saying, never, ever, ever wrestle with pigs. Uh, she said, because you both get dirty, but the pig actually likes it. And that was important for me because what I realized is what DeSantis and Trump want to do is to drag me into the, into into the, the gutter yeah. with them, right? Uh, because they can survive getting dirty. I can't survive. And I want to tell you the truth. My grandmother, Bendler, used to say that, too. I remember <laughs> her saying that. Never wrestle with a pig. You both get dirty. The pig will love it. Now, what year was this? 1920? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> And our next guest is <laughs> uh, so, uh, but again, very effectively, just puts it, you know, just knocks it down, right? Yeah, yeah. He he really does seem to be at the top of his game right now, and it's helping, you know, somebody like Bill Nelson, the Democratic senator there, uh, who a lot of people thought was in a lot of trouble this year, and he seems to be, you know, holding his own against Rick Scott, um, the governor, the Republican governor who um, now got uh, another issue that he's got to contend with is this birthright citizenship thing that Trump seemingly came out of nowhere that he's, you know, he's running from. He was asked about it yesterday by a reporter and he walked, he simply walked away. He didn't even address the question. Right, right. And uh, Ron DeSantis and Rick Scott both showing up with Donald Trump last night at the rally in Florida. So, I mean, they've They've hooked their wagon to his star, right? You know, for better or for worse. Absolutely. And and with that comes all these red hot issues that Donald Trump is throwing out there, um, which particularly on the immigration issues don't necessarily play that well in Florida. That's right. Um, you get the sense that a lot of Republicans really would <laughs> would love for the president to stay away, to you know, not tweet about them. Uh, we saw this in uh, a lot of House races right now. The, the battle for the House is so pitched, and uh, there's so many vulnerable Republicans, and yet Donald Trump still endorsing and tweeting about some of them, which does not help them when their challengers can go ahead and say, oh, this guy's a you know, complete rubber stamp for Trump. We saw this in a, a Kansas race earlier this week. Uh, Kevin Yoder in a suburban district of Kansas has been basically trying to portray himself as a guy who stood up to Trump 100% of the time. And mm-hmm. the president go has, goes, goes ahead and tweets <laughs> about him and says he's a great guy. And, like, this is not something you need. 
You know, we've seen this over and over. Please, Mr. President, don't <laughs> say I'm a great guy. Right. <laughs> no, it is true. I'm following Donald Trump's tweets. I mean, every once in a while, just out of the blue, you know, there'll be a tweet about such and such a guy that you've never heard of being so great and we really need him back. I mean, does he, is, did the NRCC give him a list of every Republican candidate <laughs> and that his goal is to get at least one tweet for each of them between now and Tuesday? I, he went on a tear earlier this week where he had like four or five and it's just like form tweets, right? No, they are. They're all form, a little different thing. each one, but they basically say the same thing and they're not, they're not associated with any campaign stop or anything they're just yeah. sort of you know the the best the best example this week though was his he tweeted one of these stock endorsements for a republican and he called him a congressman so you know it was dave dave Riglesbury in virginia i think oh. uh I, I may be getting that wrong but um the guy isn't a congressman he's just running for the house Oh, and he, so and so oh, Donald Trump says, "Oh, he's this con- you know reelect this congressman, Dave. Uh, he's been he's been he supported the tax cuts, the military. You know, he was great in in passing the tax cuts. The di- the guy's never been in Congress. He's just totally <laughs> totally screwed that up. Well, he just got yeah he he misread the memo or something right. like that. We got the names wrong. <laughs> but uh, so it's out there. So um, but but the Florida." And with all of his money, right, Rick Scott, at best, is tied with Nelson in yeah. Florida. Yeah, he put up another uh, $1.3 million of his mm-hmm. own money yesterday. He's burning <laughs> He's burning through cash like crazy. Wow. It's amazing. Yeah, I, I just have a question about the polls, right, when we look at the polls and, and all this stuff. I mean, are they sort of outdated? Maybe it's the way that we do them or the people that get asked the questions. It, it, are we sort of now at a, at a time where we just kind of should stop trusting the polls as much? I mean, look at what happened in 2016. I was just going to say, after Every 2016, said, you shouldn't believe any poll. Right, right. I, 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 I tend to sort of take every poll I read now with a grain of salt. Well, I will say that the national polls in 2016 pretty much you know, captured the picture correctly, which was a, a Clinton win of two to three points. Mm-hmm. She did get more votes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was the state polls where really the problem was, you know, places like the Rust Belt that they completely missed, you know, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania. Um, so I think the issue is, you know, more on the ground than, than overall. But uh, this cycle, there is just so much evidence, so many polls. Uh, it doesn't matter in, at what part of the country. The Midwest right now is looking like it's going to be a saving grace for Democrats, especially, you know, in, in governorships and uh, state houses. Um so I, I think it's definitely different. And you've also got a tremendously different field in, in the sense that Republicans are defending something like 60, 70 seats. Uh, Even the, more. That's right. That's yeah. right. And and so it's the potential there for Democrats is so much bigger. Right. It's interesting that yesterday, pardon me, Nancy Pelosi, a Democratic leader, said um, a week ago, I would say we have a good chance of winning the House. Today, I would say we will win the House. Period. Yeah, she's, their internal she seems... polling must be pretty strong, and she would know. She would know. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, she's not just saying that. She's right. she's a brilliant strategist, uh, and has raised more money than anybody else has. Uh, and she knows. I, I bet if she was sitting here, she could go down every single house race in the country. Yeah, 
uh, and exactly what it looks like and what the advantages are and disadvantages are. Um, one other big race um, that uh, has been getting a lot of attention, of course, is Missouri and uh, a unique race because it's such a deep red state and Claire McCaskill are kind of a different kind of Democrat trying to win re-election there. What, yeah. what, do, you, what do you hear? What do you see? Well, you know, you, we, in the last couple of days, she's really, really started to hug Trump and his rhetoric on the border, on border security, on the caravan. She she gave it. She went on Fox News, which is a you know the president's favorite favorite network, a tell, uh, to hmm. say that she stands behind him one hundred percent on 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 the the migrant caravan approaching the border. You know whatever he's got to do, we've got to do. You know we've got to support him. Um, so it. And and it's that's reflected at least in the public polling, which shows um, her opponent, Josh Hawley, by up something like uh, you know three or four points. Republicans in private are even more confident. They're saying that you know she's down by six seven points. The gap is wider. Um, so she's really in a predicament, and she's trying to survive. She put out a, a, an ad last week. Saying that you know the narrator in the ad says she's not one of those quote crazy, crazy Democrats, Democrats right who who opposes uh, knee jerk opposes the president at every turn you know she took took swipes at Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders there's a lot of tells here in, in her posturing that she's really really fighting uh, for for survival yeah I'm mixed about that <laughs> of course. <laughs> Uh, I'd rather see a D there to vote for the next uh, leader of the Senate, but um, she's certainly not my kind of Democrat. And uh, but but she does try to reflect, I think, to give her some credit. There's a good profile of her in this week's uh, New Yorker magazine. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's last week by now um, that she really does focus on what she thinks is best for the people of Missouri. Yeah, and and she that. and she's not like so, so she's not running for president or looking for right. adulation from. Uh, the Wall Street Democrats or the Hollywood Democrats or whatever, right? Just yeah. what serves Missouri best. But I think she could be more progressive than she is and still get reelected in Missouri. But I'm not it's, running. It's a tough spot. I mean, the president won her state. You know, Barack Obama did not win her state. He did win in Indiana in 2008. So Missouri is really trending a, a different way. She's she's trying to. On the other hand, she did vote against you know Kavanaugh, right? Kavanaugh, mm-hmm. Supreme yeah, Court. Right. So that's that was a stand on her part. Um, it's 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 a tough tough fight for her. Uh, Joe Donnelly has gotten himself in a little bit of a pickle um, in Indiana. He did another state, another race, which is toss up ball. Right? That's right. That's right. Yeah, Democrats are a little bit more optimistic there, um, at least at the moment. You know, she he's running against uh, Mike Braun, who's a very Trump Trump friendly Republican House Republican. Um, so it's an it's another tight tight race there for Democrats. And Donnelly's questions, comments about diversity. <laughs> That's right. He he uh, in the debate on Tuesday night he um, he was asked about the diversity in his in his staffing in his office and his Senate office campaigns. All candidates were asked, and he he gave kind of a, a bad answer, awkwardly phrased answer about his uh, the, some of the minorities serving on his staff. He, you know, he mentioned a, a, a state director um, who, 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 an African American state director, but she does a wonderful job. He mentioned <laughs> another like Indian American uh, uh, staffer, but, but, but you know, yeah. despite that, 
she does a wonderful job. So he's been taking some heat over that. He put out a statement saying that he misspoke and he intended to say and instead mm. of but. Uh, but um, <laughs> it's kind of a kind of a Mitt Romney moment there, you know. <laughs> you you get you you get reminded of, of Mitt Romney in a 2012 debate, talking about boasting about the binders full of women that he that he sought to employ as Massachusetts governor. Uh, yeah, we <laughs> guys, that's a great phrase, a Mitt Romney moment. <laughs> we miss Mitt Romney and his. Uh, I mean, the, the, for the worst with Mitt Romney, it was foot in mouth, right? Yeah, but you know, it, it just feels so quaint these days. The I know, yeah. Remember the days of gaffes when gaffes mattered? <laughs> yeah, as opposed to outright lies. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know. But I think that says a lot about the Republican Party, right? I know we're sort of going off on a little bit of a tangent here, but, uh, you know, th- they ran the best that they had when they had Mitt Romney at the time, right? And he was right on the Republican talking points of, you know, tax cuts and, bi- jo- you know, businesses are people too, my Smaller friend. Smaller government, lower Smaller taxes. Smaller government, all this stuff. Classic. And they still could not win. So now you've looked at where they've come since then, and they've turned completely towards fascism, racism, uh, uh, xenophobia, you know, everything. They've, they've adopted that part of the Romney uh, platform, uh, but also added on top of that all of the other nefarious things that they thought they were going to have to get rid of. Remember, after he lost, there was that famous autopsy yep. that was, yeah. we have yeah. to be more inclusive of Latinos and Latinas. Right. And they just gave up on that. You know, we uh, we talked a little bit about uh, Georgia and the Secretary of State there, and um, I think rightfully so, uh, correctly so, a lot of accusations of voter suppression on his part as Secretary of State. Uh, the person who is the king of voter suppression in the country is Chris Kobach, the That's Secretary right. of State of Kansas, who was on uh, with Anderson Cooper last night, uh, and Jeff Tubin. Mm-hmm. a legal analyst for CNN, uh, where uh, Tubin didn't dance around it. I mean, basically, he's <laughs> the guy's an outright racist. Uh, here's a little bit of that exchange. I mean, Chris has devoted his career to stopping black people and poor people from voting. I mean, that's been your goal for <laughs> decades. That is, and, and, that you is know, an outrageous accusation. Well, it's completely true. That is I an mean, absolutely it, outrageous accusation. I mean, oh, so you so if you are if you like photo ID, you're trying to stop people of color from voting. Absolutely, that is outrageous. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Good wow. for good for Tubin. I love Jeff Tubin. He's a, he's a good friend, and he's he's a great legal mind and a great writer. Uh, and yeah, he doesn't hold back at all. He, uh, wow. Just called it for what it is. Good for him. And this uh, is something that Democrats haven't always done a great job on, making no, the case that, no. you know, voter ID is inherently racist. And, and Kovac is the one. I mean, he's the one who convinced Donald Trump about this massive voter fraud. Yeah. The whole idea that three or five million people voted illegally for Hillary Clinton, so therefore he, Donald Trump, actually won the popular vote as you subtract the five million who voted illegally. It's all Kovac. Kovac. It is. And this BS commission that Donald Trump formed with Kovac ahead of it to look into voter fraud. I mean, it was it it was so embarrassing, meaning they couldn't find any evidence of voter fraud that they finally just disbanded the commission without issuing a report. Yeah, that's right. And uh, it, just Is Chris, it Kovac or Kovac? Kovac. Back, back. That's right. Okay. Yeah. And the, uh, he's running for governor now. I just going to say, and yeah. he's out there running for governor yeah. with... 
I haven't looked at that race at all. Uh, there's there's a good chance that he can win. Uh, <laughs> God forbid. <Yeah. laughs> there is a good photo of online that's that's circulating online right now from a debate the other night with Chris Kobach and and you know his Democratic challenger and, and a, a third party candidate. And uh, there's a question under under the screen that says, you know, were you a fan of Sam Brownback, the Kansas famous oh, right. Kansas governor who ran the state's economy into the ground? And the only person who raised their hand is. Oh, no. Back. Oh, really? <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> just a funny, funny clip. Well, remember that the very first Republican debate, wasn't it, on CNN when would you support the Republican nominee, no matter who it is? And everybody That's raised right. their hand except Donald Trump? That's right. You know, there's a huge controversy <laughs> over that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> remember that way back? I mean, that, that was like 10 years quaint. ago, I think. Yeah, yeah, seriously. But that seems like a a, a, a quaint little move of his, right? right? Like how he's ramped it up since then. Uh, and um, Steve, uh, wait a minute, uh, Ted Cruz kind of showed his uh, true colors yesterday, right? Coming out <laughs> with a great big endorsement and a great big hug for... Steve, Steve King. King. Yeah, that's right. Steve King, who could lose this year, finally, right? I'm, uh, I'm still skeptical. Ultimate. Yeah. But there was, there was a p- very bad poll for him that came out this week, which is very surprising, took a lot of people by surprise, that had him only up by a point, which is crazy. You know, this is a very rural, conservative Iowa district. Um, but he's been largely absent. He's raised zero money. He hasn't campaigned at all. He's been out in Europe. Campaigning with you know white nationalists, white nationalists. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. saying we need people like that in this country. Right. I mean, the ultimate white supremacist, Steve King, and has been for a long time. Maybe, maybe finally catching up with him. Uh, and the fact that Ted Cruz would embrace him when he's up against a Beto O'Rourke, you know, in, in in Texas, you'd think that might be an issue, but not for yeah, not for Ted Cruz. I, I know we're over time here, but but what do you see in Texas now? I mean. You know, last week everybody was saying the polls have have shifted, and uh, Beto Rocha had a lead at one time, is now trailing Ted Cruz. And yeah. I I would be very 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 surprised if Beto pulled it out. He says it's going to be turnout. It's, it's going to make the difference. The polls turnout, are, very high turnout. You know, he may be right. He says the polls are wrong. Yeah. The excitement is on our side. Latino people, particularly young people, women, on our side. Absolutely. And we're going to turn them out, and they're going to make the difference in Ted Cruz's But history. there's still a lot more re- registered Republicans in Texas, and that's what makes a difference. Yeah, right. That, this is one of the races that will will sort of test this theory about whether or not polls actually matter. <laughs> you know, because most of them seem to show that Beto O'Rourke is down. Uh, but there is certainly, I think, more enthusiasm for him. Whether or not it's just around the country or in Texas, we'll see. And a good question about whether Donald Trump's anti-immigrant attacks here in this last week have the reverse impact mm-hmm. effect in 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 Texas, yeah, or their community to get the Latinos out to vote. Which so he may end up doing his cause a lot more harm than yeah. good. May back. Yeah. All right. Well, we got five more days. Get back to work, Igor. Thanks so much for coming in <laughs> All at HuffPost right. HuffPost dot com and. Uh, Uh, Taking a look at um, particularly incidences, growing incidences of anti-Semitism under the last two years of Donald Trump with Jack Jenkins from the Religion News Service. That's next here on the Bill Press Show, Thursday, November 1. This is the Bill Press Show. Yes, indeed. Here we are on a Thursday, November 1. Uh, Good to have you with us, friends. Thanks so much for joining us. 
uh, as we uh, take you through the news of the day. Thanks to the help today of the good members of the Sheet Metal Air, Rail, and Transportation Workers Union. They call themselves, put them all together, the Smart Union, smart-union.org. Smart-union.org is their website. All under the leadership of President Joseph Sellers. Uh, check it out. The, the good men and women of the Smart Union giving a fair day's work for a fair day's pay. You bet. Uh, joining us in studio from the Religion News Service, talk about some of the important issues of the day. Jack Jenkins, our good friend, haven't seen you in a while. It's good to have you back. Thanks for having me. The lead story, uh, upper left-hand corner, front page, above the fold of the New York Times today. Soros bashers go from the fringe to the mainstream. Right. Um, pretty disturbing in wake of what uh, happened at the, the massacre at the synagogue on Saturday uh, that um, Donald Trump and others uh, have been painting George Soros as the mad, prominent Jew who has been paying for terrorists and criminals to invade the southern border. Uh, yeah, that's 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 been the claim. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but we've seen this wave of, of if not outright anti-Semitic attacks, veiled, certainly. Even uh, Kevin McCarthy, the... Uh, Number two man in the in the in Republican House leadership who put out a tweet which he immediately he dropped soon after with all the criticism he got saying we can't let Michael Bloomberg and Tom Steyer and George Soros buy this election. Wow. Jews money by election. Right. It's an old trope. Yeah, it, it's been uh, anti-Semitism has always been a constant in um, the United States. It is unfortunately a part of. <laughs> Um, the, the, it, of our culture that has had difficulty going away. Hate crimes in particular um, often disproportionately impact Jews. Um, and that was before the rise of um, the recent spike, which happened to coincide with the rise of Donald Trump. And actually, after um, Donald Trump's election, they spiked even more. Um, last year, we saw another increase in um, you know, hate crimes perpetrated against Jews, as well as just hate speech against Jews. And I think that's kind of the, one of the interesting things about what's happening now is it's not just the crimes, which is bad enough on its own. It's the rhetoric, the conspiracy theories that attach themselves to figures like George Soros that we are used to seeing in like Daily Stormer, um, mm -hmm. you know, white supremacist websites, you know, like the dark corners of the Internet are now parts of you know political speech in the United States. Well, I, uh, the numbers that I saw, I think the anti-defamation uh, defamation league said under the, la the last two years under Donald Trump, anti-Semitic words and actions up like 60% or something yes, like that. Yes, exactly. And I mean, you know, I was um, in my old Which job- Which is frightening. Yeah, really. it, absolutely terrifying. And in my old job, we actually, um, at Think Progress, we actually tracked for three months right after Trump was elected, hate incidences in general, those in, um, impacting black people, those impacting Jewish people, those impacting Muslim people. And the highest, the most impacted group were Jewish Americans. Um, that was just in the, that three-month time period. And those are just hate incidences, right? Actually being classified as a hate crime is actually very difficult. It requires a, a very specific subset of um, legal things to come into alignment for you to be able to make a hate crime um, claim. 
And so, you know, even the fraction, the, even the percentage that we see in that spike in that statistic you just named, that's only a fraction of how much anti-Semitic, you know, acts or, or speech that we're seeing in the Internet or in everyday life across the country. Uh, and with Donald Trump, it started perhaps from with Char Charlottesville when mm -hmm. the um, mob there chanting, the Jews will not replace us, the mm -hmm. Jews will not replace us, and Donald Trump not condemning them outright, but in fact saying there were some very fine people among those. Right. Both sides. Both sides. Both mm -hmm. sides. Um, and I think that was... Which sent a chilling message, for sure, mm -hmm. in terms of almost a green light to white supremacists and and neo-Nazis. It is certainly true that among those websites and among leaders um, like David Duke and others, they see they have been very vocal about saying that they see an ally in Donald Trump. Um, even though Donald Trump has eventually, you know, condemned um, acts of uh, white supremacy and terrorism and anti-Semitism, um, particularly last year when there was the, I mean, when, when earlier when there was this uh, rash of um, bomb threats against Jewish centers, um, it took a while for Trump to actually condemn that and condemn anti-Semitism. But even though he does that, um, in these far, you know, corners of the internet where you have these like deep, dedicated anti-Semites, they often cite Donald Trump as an ally. And even if they don't, they don't necessarily see him as an obstacle either. Um, you know, for instance, the, you know, the, the, the alleged shooter in the synagogue shooting, yeah. um, you know, according to the uh, Gab accounts, the social media account that, that a lot of uh, racists hang out on, for lack of a better term, um, that's why it's actually been taken down from the Internet for a brief period of time right now. Um, is because of the prevalence of hate speech on that site. He apparently posted a lot of things on there mm -hmm. and, um, and actually was not necessarily kind to Trump. But did not see Trump as necessarily a, an opponent to his views. No, he didn't feel. He felt that Donald Trump did not go far enough. Right, and and in many ways, the um, the rhetoric that he pushed is actually uh, you know this this push against anti-immigrant and anti-refugee sentiment that has been bolstered underneath Trump's um, time as president of the United States. Um, you know the 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 fact that the shooter had a particular animus to the refugee resettlement group Hias. Right, mm -hmm. which is this Jewish refugee resettlement group, um, of which there are nine De and, and decades old. You know, highest goes back to uh, Ellis Island days. And right, and and they've been they've been working for a long time, and they've been contracting with the government for a long time. Hmm. But their work, along with the six other faith-based groups that work with the government, and there's three other non-faith-based hmm. groups that do refugee resettlement, has been decimated by the Trump administration, by the travel ban, by the limiting of refugees that have been entered um, into the United States. And it, there is some evidence to suggest that the shooter was particularly frustrated by the Jewish response to the refugee um, issue and say how vocal Jews were and the Jewish community was in supporting refugees. Um, and so anti-Semitism and anti-refugee sentiment um, combined in this scenario, it looks like. Um, to create a really hostile, volatile, and ultimately deadly combination. Well, there's a lot of evidence, I think, that 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 linked the two in his mind, at least. He his last tweet was about highest by name. Uh -huh. uh, he um, talked about the invaders, or the meaning the caravan, mm -hmm. right? Right. Uh, and the link is that how dare these. These Jews are basically anti-American because they're helping these refugees or these invaders, members of this invasion, 
you know, and who called it an evasion? Donald Trump. Donald Trump. Right. I mean, and, that language came right out of Donald Trump. And it's worth noting that even the anti-refugee sentiment and the antagonism towards refugee resettlement groups is actually not just like this corner of the Internet thing. Um, Tucker Carlson on Fox News has actually um, railed against faith-based groups taking government funds to resettle refugees since at least 2014 and actually invited the president of Hyas onto his um, show to debate him on the topic of refugee resettlement. And it's um, Tucker Carlson has repeatedly, you know, pushed back on any notion that he's seen as a white supremacist or that he endorses any of their views. But the truth is, white supremacists like David Duke and Richard Spencer and this and the website the Daily Stormer have vocally said that they see someone like um, Tucker Carlson as an ally, as someone that they can that can further these kinds of views that again are marrying. Um, anti-Semitism, which Tucker Carlson hasn't necessarily put put on his show, and anti-refugee settlement and, and antagonism towards refugee resettlement groups, which Tucker Carlson arguably has lifted up at some level. This is this is exactly what we were just talking about, the Andrew Gillum clip. Now, I'm not calling Mr. DeSantis a racist. I'm simply saying the racists believe he's a racist. The, ra- the, the white nationalists think that he's the, a white, a white nationalist. nationalist. Yeah. Right, 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 right. And the neo-Nazis think he's a neo-Nazi. Yeah. Right. Or at least he likes us, right? Yeah. Or he won't condemn us or he, yeah, gives us a wink or kind of whatever. Right. Tolerates us. Yeah. And 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 that that's as bad as doing it outright almost. Right? Yes. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Um, and uh, uh, it can it certainly can prove to be as is proven this past weekend. Right. Like it, it can fuel a lot of different kinds of anger and frustration um, in, in the wrong directions um, that end up with getting people killed. Right. Which I think does explain why some people in um, Pittsburgh, uh, when the president said, I want to come out to Pittsburgh, said, please don't, right? Unless, as long as your language is not clearly condemning, right, and clearly one side on this, we just, we don't want you here. Right. There was um, significant pushback to his visit to the city. Um, you know, the, the actual community itself was willing to welcome them as faith communities would. Um, sure. Saying that, you know, they would. And they the would. rabbi, I think, you know, he did the right thing. He had to, right? I mean, right. he could not. And and, but, and to his credit, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of faith communities that might have be filled with people who would disagree with Donald Trump would welcome him into their doors because they would see that as, as kind of the welcoming that they do. It's why the reason that a, a the synagogue. A Christian thing or, or a Jewish thing or a, or a person thing. of faith thing to do. Exactly. I mean, one thing to remember, this shooter... You know, a lot of synagogues have really high security protocols, but the doors are open during worship. And um, and that's a posture of people of faith. It's why a lot of people bristled right after the shooting when um, the president suggested that maybe if, you know, there were more armed shooters. In- Almost, yeah. Uh, people bristled at that, too. Almost blaming the synagogue for not having armed guards, right? And it's important to remember, faith groups have already significantly pushed back repeatedly against that notion. There are faith groups that have endorsed the idea of having armed citizenry in the pews, but a lot of people actually advocated against state-based laws based on their faith against the idea of arming people in church or allowing firearms onto church grounds. Um, so that's you know that 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 suggestion was already thought to be anathema to many people of faith, regardless of faith tradition across the country. Right. Um, and now, in light of all of this, Mike Pence has an event the other day uh, where um, he was offering part of the, the ceremony, I guess, was or the event was offering some prayers, a moment of silence or whatever, for the victims of the shooting in synagogue and with an unusual spokesperson. Right. He, he elevated 
um, uh, a man who goes by um, Rabbi um, Lauren Jacobs, who is head a of a not what many would call a traditional Jewish community. He is head of a messianic Jewish community, which um, is that a Christian Jewish community. So, so they would claim to be Jewish, but they believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And so they retain the the core Christian belief. Jews that, for Jesus? Yes, that is the same group, yeah, um, okay. the same category of of, of people. Yeah. And he um, and he apparently, you know, he actually during his prayer closed his prayer in the name of Jesus. He quoted, um, you know, what is classically understood to be Christian scripture, the Gospel of Matthew, twice. And he actually prayed at the beginning. I'm sure this this is. Uh, Mike Pence is kind of rabbi. Right? Well, there, there, are, there are a lot of alliances between evangelical conservative Christians and the Messianic Jewish community. That is true, um, which is why it's interesting when you have – because the, the, um, uh, Lauren Jacobs actually prayed at the beginning of the rally, and then P- Mike Pence invited him back up mm. to pray again specifically for the victims of the synagogue shooting and listed him as a leader in the Jewish community. So here's the thing: uh, those who Jews who do not belong to the Messianic Jewish community um, w- vehemently r- dispute whether Messianic Jews are Jews at all, and saw this as deeply offensive, and um, were were really outraged by it. Um, so there was immediate backlash, a selection of this individual being lifted up to uh, represent or pray for the Jewish community in the aftermath of the shooting. Is he so? In other words. He couldn't get a real Jew, so he had to get a phony Jew. Well, or, uh, you or know, a real rabbi. He had to get a phony rabbi. Well, what I will say, um, <laughs> so you know, the Messianic Jews still claim that they are Jews, and this person is a rabbi. Although it is worth noting that apparently, according, he was listed as being ordained by this one specific Messianic Jewish group, and they had to issue a correction saying, "No, no, no, we stripped him of his ordination." Back in two thousand three, two thousand four. So even among he was defrocked, un- right? right. It was even unclear if he has any ordination status, even within the community that he claims. Um, so we're we're not really sure if even under the umbrella of groups that he belongs to, if he's considered a rabbi. <laughs> so it's it was an interesting choice. Um, and apparently, he was invited by one of the other um, lawmakers at the event who is running for Congress in the state of Michigan. It's, it's also worth noting he specifically prayed for the victory of four different Republicans during his um, opening prayer. Mm. Um, oh. And oh. Really? <laughs> yes. At the same event? At the same event. Um, and one of the ones he prayed for was the woman who invited him, um, who is a conservative um, Jew. She, is, um, she attends a conservative synagogue. And she issued a statement defending her decision, saying that this needs to be part of you know, religious unity. Um, but I, the, the rabbinical groups that I spoke with when I reported on this, particularly the, the rabbinical societies for Reconstructionist um, Judaism, um, and others said, you know, one, we don't consider this person to be Jewish. Two, we don't consider them to be a rabbi. And three, you know, even granting all of those things, they simply did not represent the kind of Judaism that was preached at the synagogue that was attacked. And it right. felt like it's they, their position is that it, they felt like it sowed more division than it did unity in that moment. It's echoes of, for me, echoes of the rabbi who was invited to Jerusalem to speak at the opening of the new Jewish embassy in right. in, in Jerusalem. Right. I'm, I'm sorry, American embassy in Jerusalem. Uh, and I forget the details now, but it was also someone who's really not recognized by the mainstream American Jewish community. Yeah, so, correct? So, well, this is, what's interesting about this pattern is that what you see here is there 
among American Jews, there is um, when you when you when they are polled, there is a lot of antipathy towards Trump and towards a lot of Trump supporters and a lot of the rhetoric that comes out of that. Um, and there are you know they pointed out that uh, when Mike Pence elevated this individual in Michigan. Um, there were at least 60, if not hundreds of other rabbis in the, in the area mm-hmm. that could have been chosen right. to deliver a prayer. Yeah, and um, would have. Exactly. And, and maybe if they wouldn't, they wouldn't have given you know, a prayer where they specifically prayed for the victory of four different Republicans. <laughs> um, but they would have absolutely, um, I think there's a strong belief that they would have absolutely prayed for the victims of the synagogue shooting. Sure. Um, and prayed for you know, the leaders of the country in general. And there does seem to be this pattern um, of selecting uh, faith leaders who represent a certain line of thinking, or in some cases, you know, what some people argue is a literal party line. And um, the fact that this this you know Rabbi Lauren Jacobs, you know, representing you know the Messianic Jewish, Jewish community, repeatedly prayed for you know God to lift up leaders within the Republican Party within the country, and then name checked four individuals running for office. I mean, that's you know, you're not going to get that from a lot of um, mainstream um, Jewish leaders, regardless of their political um, affiliations. I think there's a lot of rabbis who might be registered as Republicans who probably wouldn't deliver that prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the same reason why there was a lot of criticism around when Mark Burns, a a pastor, uh, uh, what's often described as a prosperity gospel preacher out of South Carolina, when he delivered a prayer at the Republican National Convention in 2016, which was one of the most overtly partisan prayers that had been delivered in some time, um, some of his critics—he ended up running for Congress—but um, <laughs> the but some of his critics said, you know, he has this tiny little church. You know, how'd they find this guy? And <laughs> and you know that they were. The truth is, it's it, Trump's Trump um, is not unique in finding unusual faith leaders to speak on behalf, um, you know, of him in a campaign. That's that's an old political mm-hmm. yeah, um, right. move, but it is. Certainly, a different kind of national um, platform for some of the faith leaders that have been lifted up by this administration. Uh, sort of in the interest, maybe, of being an equal opportunity offender here, uh, I do want to ask you about the fact that the two most recent cardinals of the Catholic Church in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. Cardinal McCarrick uh, and Cardinal Worley, have both been, or both have been booted. Yes. Less less so maybe for Worley than McCarrick, uh, because of either covering up or actually accused of sexual assault uh, uh, and taking advantage of the position to sexually assault uh, young men. Yes. Uh, what? Where does that leave the the American? And we know what's happening in Pennsylvania with and the Department of Justice now has intervened in that case. Um, within seven out of eight dioceses in Pennsylvania, other states are looking into it. What's the status of the American Catholic Church with all of this going on? I mean, it's a, it's it it is a contentious and um, I mean difficult time for a lot of American Catholics. Um, I mean, now you have anywhere, depending on how you count it, from twelve to fourteen or even fifteen states that are conducting investigations um, around that number into dioceses in their region um, it, or in their their state purview in some degree. Like you said, there's a federal investigation in Pennsylvania, as well as in to at least one diocese in the state of New York. Um, and all of this, what I think it's important to remember is that, you know, the big Pennsylvania report that was released earlier this year that kind of started all this, kind of restarted yeah. the conversation yeah. around the uh, Catholic sex abuse crisis. Most, the overwhelming majority, almost actually truth, almost all 
Now, the instances that they record in that report are beyond the statute of limitations. And so, mm -hmm. one, they're calling for limiting, you know, changing the law so they can enforce them. But two, a lot of them happened a long time ago with a couple of exceptions. And um, and so this is, these other investigations as they get launched are also likely to find the same. But what I think is interesting about this moment and the story of the Catholic sex abuse crisis is that historically... Um, the people who do who do um, have justice served against them are often the priests themselves, right? The priests will get arrested. Yeah. The priests will be tried. But the hierarchy has worldwide in the Catholic sex abuse um, crisis right. has not been held accountable with the same well, force as you see these priests. And that seems to be a big part of what's happening now. No, but in fact, au contraire, like Cardinal Law from uh, Boston mm -hmm. was summoned back to Vatican and then given the third most powerful post in Rome. Right. Uh, as a reward almost for all this cover-up. Uh, McCarrick himself accused of sexual abuse uh, by several priests and former priests or seminarians um, was made head of the, or co-head, I think, of the commission to investigate sexual abuse among priests in this country. And really, when, the, when Francis, Pope Francis last week demoted him or accepted his resignation, I guess, still made him some, kept him on as some senior advisor to the Vatican. Right. I mean, it, it doesn't, I think that particularly for abuse victims um, and groups I've spoken with, you know, the biggest, who, who've been calling for the, for, by the way, for a federal investigation for some time, mm -hmm. um, you know, their perspective is that the same system that they argue protected priests yeah. in the begin with, it, where they move priests around, is now just happening again, but they're protecting well, the people the, in the, charge. The hierarchy, right? Yeah. yeah. A very prominent Catholic and very prominent public office holder told me about a week ago that this is the end of the Catholic Church in America. I wouldn't go that far, but it's certainly not a good time for the Catholic Church. Hey, Jack, it's always good to see you. Thanks for stirring things up. Uh, you can follow <laughs> Jack at religionnews, religionnews.com. Have a great Thursday, folks. Ja uh, Chris Lewin this tomorrow. Is the see you Bill then. Press show.